You don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. And that turns the whole thing on its head. You don't go to the margins to reach anybody. You go to the margins so that the widow, orphan, and stranger reach you. And what is that issue in? Kinship. Welcome to the Missing Voices Project. My name is Justin Forbes, and this podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. I'm convinced that these often overlooked or forgotten adolescents belong in the church, and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So, with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. Let's get into it. Okay, I want to try and set up this episode before we jump in. So if you remember, we have a few episodes now where we are listening in on our experiences in Los Angeles. We took our lead innovators from the Missing Voices Project to LA for a few days. And one of our most anticipated stops was to Homeboy Industries. Uh, we, We were going to visit Father Gregory Boyle and Homeboy Industries and to learn from their work And we got to take some tours of what they're up to. You know, one of the amazing themes that came out was the emphasis on counseling, on community, on friendship, and their term that they go back to again and again, kinship, a a place of belonging and being welcome. Unfortunately, Father Greg wasn't there uh, at the end of the day when we got there. And so we weren't able to spend time with him then. But just a week later, he was actually here in Florida speaking at Christ Episcopal Church which is about 45 minutes north of us in St. Augustine in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. So we were able to arrange to borrow a recording of his guest lecture there, uh, which was a presentation of the church's Bridge Institute. So this was recorded on October 29th, 2019 at Christ Episcopal Church in Ponte Vedra Beach. Uh, And again, it was a presentation of the church's Bridge Institute. So that worked out really well. We were able to uh, utilize this time with Father Greg. And, you know, it really gives you an incredible insight or, I guess, picture of what they're doing there with that community. Also, like when you go to take a tour of this place, it's unbelievable. I mean, there was tattoo removal. There was tutoring. There was counseling centers. There's also like a cafe with some like incredible tacos. So if you're ever in the area, I would really encourage you to go by and see Uh, You can arrange a tour. It's not a big deal to do that, Uh, but it was an incredible opportunity to meet people, to hear stories. Uh, Yeah, really, really pretty special. So, okay, I'll stop talking. You can enjoy Father Greg. Father Gregory Boyle, a Jesuit priest, celebrated author and teacher and compassionate heart, is a Jesuit priest and founder of Homeboy Industries, which has offered hope to gang members in East L.A. for over 30 years. He is the award-winning author of 2010's Tattoos on the Heart and 2017's Barking to the Choir, the recipient of too many awards to count, celebrated speaker who makes roughly 200 events a year to inspire others to practice the power of boundless compassion and, and embrace the power of radical kinship. The Jesuits have uh, a beautiful way about them that 
when you want a grace to be given from God, you just ask for it. And so I hope you will, as we welcome Father G, um, join me in prayer for grace this evening. Let us pray. God who is revealed in compassion. God, you are the author of kinship. We thank you for this time with your servant, Gregory. Enliven us with your grace that we might have the courage to listen, the will to obey your call in our lives, the bravery to stay focused on the work you ask each of us to do, the witness to your boundless and reconciling love. All this we ask in the name of he who pioneered and perfected our faith, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please join me in welcoming Father G. Thank you, Remington, for your kindness and your hospitality. So uh, here's why I think you're here tonight, if I may be so bold, and bold seems to be uh, your, uh, a key word here, um, is I think you're here because you want to imagine the world to, to look differently than it currently looks. And good for you for your imagination. Uh, you want to... to Join with God in imagining a, a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. So Mother Teresa diagnosed the world's ills correctly when she suggested that the problem in the world is that we've just forgotten that we belong to each other. So how do we stand against forgetting that? How do we imagine with God a circle of compassion and then imagine nobody standing outside that circle? How do we go from this gorgeous church out so that we can together dismantle the barriers that exclude? And to that end, we're all invited by the gospel to be bold enough to stand at the margins, because the margins won't ever get erased unless we choose to stand out at them. And we stand with a particularity, uh, with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. And we stand with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And every once in a while, uh, we are so privileged to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out. We get to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop, and with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. No kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality. No matter how singularly focused we may well be on these worthy goals, they actually can't happen unless there's some undergirding sense that we belong to each other. And so we go to the margins, and I think we brace ourselves because the folks will accuse us of wasting our time at the margins. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voices of those who sing. So you go to the margins, and then suddenly other voices get heard. And that's as it should be. Well, I think none of that makes any sense 
uh, unless there's some overriding notion of what kind of God we have. We've settled for a puny, partial notion of God, and it's gotten in the way of our service. It's gotten in the way of our boldness in going to the margins. And uh, because we've settled for a God that we've created in our own image, which is a difficulty. My, my friend Annie Lamott always says, you know you've created God in your own image when God hates the same people you do, you know. <laughs> I remember years ago, I had a spiritual director who, uh, who told me, says, we need a better God than the one we have. He was a jujitsu priest. <laughs> but of course he was right, because we've settled for puny when we could have spacious. We've settled for partial when we're being offered expansive. The uh, mystic and theologian who died in 1389 or something, Meister Eckhart, uh, said, It is a lie, any talk of God that doesn't comfort you. Now, whereas I think we like that, we have a hard time actually believing that. But what if that were the only agenda of our spacious God? St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, always talked about the God who's always greater, which is to say once you land on something that you think is definitive of who our God is, ooh, it's always greater than that, which is helpful. Now, the homies have always drawn me into a deeper and more expansive sense of who our God is. And and oftentimes they do it by way of mangling the English language. If you've read any of my books, you know I, I, I find them both delightful and charming, but always illuminating. I, I remember there was a homegirl named Lisa, who was a gang member and one of our trainees in our 18-month training program, and she walked in with her man, and she wanted to introduce him to me, and it was the end of the day he came to pick her up, and she says, this is my sufficient other. I said, no doubt. <laughs> you know, what allows me to be with you nice people on the other side of the country is uh, the fact that I have a CEO named Tom who really uh, uh, runs the place now, or a $22 million annual operation. So I'm happy not to handle cash flow and budgets, you know, and and so I had a homie again, one of our trainees, a gang member, came in early in the morning to begin the day, and he said, damn, gee, my lady, she's in a bad mood today. And I said, why? Well, you know, she's beginning her administration period. <laughs> I said, well, I just ended mine, so uh, I kind of know what she's going through. Uh, but my favorite one, and, and more to the point of the point I'm trying to make, is uh, happened when I was presiding at the Eucharist at uh, San Fernando Juvenile Hall. And we were in a gym, and there were like 500 all gang members, all male. And uh, I'm sitting up on a raised platform. I'm, I'm vested, wearing my alb and my stole. And they have these little sheets that have the readings in English and in Spanish in two columns. 
Um, and so I, I decide that I'm going to just rest this sheet on my lap, you know, as you do sometimes, because you want to listen to the word proclaimed. So the homies came up, first guy got up and uh, did the first reading, and the second guy got up to do the responsorial psalm, and there was a kind of an overabundance of confidence in his voice, and he gets up in front of these 500 gang members, and he says, the Lord is exhausted. <laughs> and I look at the sheet, I say, what the hell? <laughs> and it was, the Lord is exalted. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's way better. Because if you think about it, you know, the exalted God is, truth be told, created in our own image. You know, because let's face it, every one of us, if we were God, we would want to be exalted. And so we project that onto the image of God, but, but the exhausted God is richer, more expansive, it's more generous. It's, it's the God who says, no, it's not about me, it's about you. Wow. That's what you do as parents and as grandparents. You, this generosity should not be surprising to you. The exhausted God is about something else and calls us to something deeper. If I could speak personally, you know, uh, uh, not all that long ago, I, I buried my 92-year-old mama who uh, had eight kids, five girls and three boys. I buried my father like 25 years ago. Uh, but she died as, as we all would want to, you know, in her own home, surrounded by her kids, uh, in her own bed. Um, and she was sharp as a tack uh, to the very end. In fact, in the last year of her life, she watched so much MSNBC, she was becoming Rachel Maddow. <laughs> and... Um, and she wasn't a lick afraid of dying. As a matter of fact, like a month before she died, uh, she said, I've never done this before. You know, which is something you might say just before skydiving, you know. And in fact, her last words to me uh, were the day before she died. And I just happened to be there by myself, which never happened. And she was asleep and she woke up and she saw me there and she went, Oh, for crying out loud. And she went back to sleep. Well, she was pissed off that she hadn't died, you know, so <laughs> sorry. But the next day, and again, this just only happened to me twice. The next day at noon, I was sitting there all alone. And at, at, right at noon, exactly, her eyes opened. And she let out this tiny, glorious, wondrous gasp. <gasps> Skydiving. And she left us. And no one in earshot of that sound could ever be afraid of death again. But in the last weeks of her life, she'd be in and out of consciousness or sleep or whatever it was. And we would surround her two or three or five or all eight of her kids, and, and she would wake up and she'd lock onto just one of us. 
with a laser beam focused, and she would say with breathless delight, oh, you're here, you're here. And when I buried her, I thought, well, I think that may well be the only agenda item of our exhausted God, which is to look at you with breathless delight and say, oh, you're here. You're here. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. You notice the notice of God, and then you choose to be the notice of God in the world. You receive the tender glance, and I'm not so sure we have any choice except to go out into the world and be that tender glance in the world, and it is a lie. Any talk of God that doesn't comfort you. Or as that Christmas carol says, comfort and joy, comfort and joy. My joy, yours, Jesus says, your joy complete. That's it. We don't believe this because we think God wants something from us. But I think our exhausted God only wants for us. And once you know that, then you can be bold at the margins. Then you can choose to be in the world who God is. And that's how it works. And so you go to the margins and you begin with service, which is sort of a hallmark of this community here. But service is a tricky thing because service is where you begin. You don't want to end in service. Service is the hallway that gets you to the ballroom, which is the place of kinship and exquisite mutuality. You don't want to settle for service any more than you want to settle for a partial God. You want to get to the God's dream come true, which is there is no distance. There is no separation. There is no us and them. There's just us. You want to get to exquisite mutuality. I was in Houston, and after a talk, a, a guy came up to me with tattoos and been to prison, was a gang member, and now he was working as a, what they call a hardcore gang intervention worker in the streets of Houston with gang members. And I remember he pleaded with me, and he said, how do you reach them, meaning gang members? And I found myself saying to him, well, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them? Suddenly you've turned this thing on its head because service is the hallway. You want to get to the ballroom. One of the great privileges of my life was knowing Cesar Chavez as a friend. And uh, there was just, he was simply the best listener I've ever been in the presence of in my whole life. If you were talking to Cesar Nobody else existed, laser beam focused. He was never looking over your shoulder to see if someone more important was on the approach. And uh, once famously, a reporter had commented to him and said, wow, these farm workers, they sure love you. And Cesar just shrugged and smiled and said, the feeling's mutual, which is, of course, the goal. How do we bridge the distance? Even in service, there's a distance. Service provider, service recipient. We want to bridge that gulf. 
so that there is no distance there. Well, I remember there was a homie, we all called him Dreamer, and he, he grew up in the housing projects where I was pastor, and he got into a gang like his older brothers. A super smart kid with a dangerous sense of humor, which I always enjoyed. He's doing fine now in his mid-40s, married, kids, house, good construction job. But in his early 20s, in particular, he was kind of a yo-yo, in and out of being locked up. I'd find him a job in the private sector, or I'd find him, uh, you know, something in, a, uh, in one of our nine uh, social enterprises. But then, real quickly, he'd gravitate back to vague criminality, usually something involving drugs, the sale of or the use of, and then he'd wander back to me. So it was kind of a frustrating, repetitious pattern. So this one time, he finished a four-month stretch of probation violation at county jail, and there he is sitting in front of my desk, and he says what gang members often say, this time, it'll be different. And I go, hmm, all right. So with him sitting there, I picked up the phone. I called a friend of mine named Gary who uh, had a, a, a vending machine company in Alhambra, California. He had hired homies over the years. I was hoping against hope maybe he'll hire another one. Sure enough, Gary says, yeah, you tell that guy he can start tomorrow. That's a holy man right there. So Dreamer began work the next day at the vending machine company. Well, exactly two weeks later, there he is again in front of my desk. I couldn't believe my eyeballs. I said, híjole madre santa, here we go all over again, you know. And, but this time he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out his very first paycheck and he waves it proudly and he says, damn, gee, this paycheck makes me feel proper. I mean, my mom, she's proud of me, and my kids, they're not ashamed of me. And you know who I have to thank for this job. And I said, well, who? And he looked at me strangely, and he said, well, God, of course. I, oh, sure, no. <laughs> That's right. That, that would be God. You thought I was going to say you. I said, no, gosh, God's number one. He said, you are so lucky we're not living in them Genesis days. And I'm sorry, them Genesis days? And I said, yeah, because God would have been had, struck down your ass already by now. <laughs> well, the thing I most remember was the two of us, we just fell out of our chairs howling with laughter, and I defy you to identify exactly Who's the service provider? Who's the service recipient? I don't know. It's mutual. We want God's dream to come true, which is a community of kinship such that God, in fact, might recognize it. And, and the homies have, have taught me about that. In fact, they've taught me everything of value, including texting, which I'm so grateful to them because I find... It sure beats the heck out of actually talking to people, and, and I'm pretty, pretty good at it, pretty dexterous, you know, LOL and OMG and BTW. The homies have taught me a new one, OHN, which apparently stands for, oh, hell no. And I've been using that one quite a bit lately, and 
I, I presume I'm not alone in being vexed by this autocorrect thing, you know. So I had a homegirl named Bertha, a tough cookie drug dealer, was in prison, worked for me for a time. On a Sunday, she texted me. She said, where are you at? And so I texted her back. I am about to speak to a room full of monjas. And monjas is Spanish for sisters, nuns, religious women. I'm about to speak to a room full of monjas. I pushed sand and autocorrect told her, I was about to speak to a room full of ninjas, which she thought was, you know, pretty darn interesting. Even today, the homies, their hair is always on fire. Oh my gosh, my rent is due, and oh, they're going to cut off my lights, and my car note, and my car just, I need a carburetor. I'm the priest they mistook for an ATM machine. So, and so this one guy just needed $100 to finish off his rent. So I wrote him back simply, things are tight. And I pushed send and autocorrect told him, thongs are tight. <laughs> and he wrote me back, sorry to hear that. <laughs> uh, what about my rent? Uh, so I'm in a car, if, if you ever go to Homeboy Industries, try to get there for morning meeting, which is exactly from uh, 8.50 to 9 o'clock, and it's just joyous. Heaven won't be different from the morning meeting. Hundreds and hundreds of gang members, black, brown, all enemies standing together. We pray, we sing happy birthday, people announce things that reduce people to tears. You know, I just got all my kids back, or whatever it is. It's joyous. So right after the morning meeting, I took two homies with me, Manuel and Poncho, and they were going to help me speak at a high school in desert, uh, Palm Desert, about two hours from L.A. So they get in the car, Manuel's in the front seat, Poncho's in the back. We're 15 minutes on the road when Manuel gets an incoming text and he reads it to himself and he chuckles. And I said, what is it? Oh, it's dumb. It's from Snoopy back at the office. I'd just seen Snoopy. Snoopy was there, gave me a big gavarazo as the morning was beginning. Snoopy and Manuel work together, and they clock in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of our workers, all gang members. It is a tough job. I would not want it uh, because this may come as a surprise to you, um, but gang members can occasionally be attitudinal. <laughs> I would not want this job. So I say, well, what's he say? And he goes, oh, it's dumb. Hang on, let me, let me find, here it is. Hey, dog, it's me, Snoops. Yeah, they got my ass locked up in county jail. They're charging me with being the ugliest vato in America. You have to come down right now, show them they got the wrong guy. Well, I nearly drove into oncoming traffic. The three of us, we laughed so damn hard, and then... And then I realized that Manuel and Snoopy are enemies. They're from rival gangs. They used to shoot bullets at each other because I remember. And now they shoot text messages. And there's a word for that, and the word is kinship. How do we obliterate once and for all the illusion that we are separate, that there is an us and a them? So Homeboy was started a long time ago, 1988. I had hair. None of it was white. And um, 
I was assigned to the poorest parish uh, in Los Angeles, Dolores Mission, um, nestled in the middle of two public housing projects, Pico Gardens and Aliso Village. At the time, it was the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. We had eight gangs at war with each other, and uh, which is unheard of that you would have that many gangs in uh, in public housing, two public housing units is, uh, contiguous. Uh, leading the LAPD to call my parish the place of the highest concentration of gang activity in all of Los Angeles. So I buried my first uh, young person killed because of this sadness in 1988, and I buried my 231st last week. Not all of them are from that parish community, of course, but because I run a large gang intervention program, I get asked to do this. So the first thing we did was we started a school. So there were all these junior high, middle school age gang members who had been given the boot from their home school. Um, nobody wanted them. And so they were wreaking havoc during the day in the projects. They were selling drugs. They were writing on the walls. They were violent. So I went out to them, and I would kind of isolate them one at a time. I'd say, hey, you know, if I found a school that would take you, would you go? And to my surprise, every single one said, yeah, you know, I would. And then I couldn't find a school that would take them. You know, that sort of forced my hand. So right across the street from the church is our parochial school, grades K to 8, occupying the first two floors. Well, the entire third floor was the convent where the ninjas lived. And so I gathered all the nuns together in the living room. I sat them down. I said, hey, you know, would you guys mind, you know, moving out? And, uh, and we could turn the convent into a school for gang members. And I, they looked at each other and they went, sure. And that was the entirety of their discernment process. And so then gang members came in large numbers to the church property, which created something of a disconnect. Parishioners would sidle up to me and say, hey, uh, aren't churches supposed to be hermetically sealed? You know, good people in and bad people out, which I thought was a good gospel challenge. And then the gang members kept saying, if only we had jobs. So myself and the women, there were only really women in the, in the housing projects, women with children. So myself and the women, we marched around the factory surrounding the projects trying to find felony-friendly employers, and that wasn't so forthcoming. So we just started things, you know, a maintenance crew, a landscaping crew, a crew to remove graffiti, a crew to build our child care center on the church property, all made up of rival enemy gang members from the eight gangs in the projects. And then some of you might recall this, uh, in 1992, after the Rodney King verdict in Los Angeles, every pocket of poverty erupted except the poorest pocket, my parish. And so the LA Times wanted to know why that was, and so they asked me, and I said, well, maybe it's because uh, we had 60 strategically hired 
rival enemy gang members who were working side by side with each other, and so they had a reason to get up in the morning and and a reason not to gangbang the night before, and more to the point of your question, a reason not to torch their own community. So the next day, this article appeared in the LA Times. Well, the following day, I was summoned to the Beverly Hills office of a movie producer named Ray Stark, who happened to have $500 million. And he sat me down and he said, how should I spend my money? And as I look back on that now, I see that I woefully undershot my request. <laughs> I was young. I had hair. Uh, so I said, well, there's an abandoned bakery across the street from the school. It's got ovens. They don't work. You could buy the building. You could fix the ovens. We could put hairnets on rival enemy gang members. I don't know. They could bake bread. We could call the place homeboy bakery, and that was the extent of my entire business plan. And he said, sure, so we were off and running. Uh, a month later, we started homeboy tortillas in the Grand Central Market in downtown LA. Once we had plural, we changed our name, which had been previously called Jobs for a Future. We changed it to Homeboy Industries, as if there was any industry involved in this. Not everything worked, I'll be the first to admit it. Homeboy plumbing really was not hugely successful. <laughs> Who knew uh, people didn't want gang members in their homes? I, <laughs> I did not see that coming. And nobody ever intends to do such a thing, but we backed our way, we evolved our way into becoming now we're the largest gang intervention rehab, reentry program on our planet. So 15,000 folks a year. <clears throat> 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors trying to reimagine their lives. And uh, the centerpiece is uh, our 18-month training program. The homies and homegirls want in on that because it's a paid gig. But it's... We used to be job-centric, now we're healing-centered. The principle being that in the old days, we, you, know, you, you might assert that an employed gang member uh, you know, may or may not reoffend, or an educated one may or may not reoffend, but it is our guarantee that a healed gang member will never go back to prison. And so far, so good. Everyone who comes through our doors comes with what psychiatrists would, psychologists would call a disorganized attachment. Mom was frightened or frightening, and you can't calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. No kid is seeking anything when he joins a gang. He's always fleeing something. Nobody in this church or outside of it has ever met a hopeful kid who joined the gang. That's never happened. Gangs are the places kids go when they've encountered their life as a misery. And who doesn't know by now that misery loves company? So they come to us, they're seeking kind of a sanctuary respite from their chronic toxic stress, which they carry every day. And then before long, in a community of tenderness, they become the sanctuary that they sought. 
And then they go home and they present that sanctuary to their kids and suddenly for the first time you've broken a cycle. And then they re-identify who they are in this essential healing process. And then they gain some resilience they never had and then they leave us after 18 months and the world will for sure throw things at them, but this time they won't be toppled by it. So we have therapy, everybody's in therapy, four paid therapists, but 47 volunteer therapists, including two psychiatrists. Free tattoo removal, no place on the planet Earth removes more tattoos than we do. We have a designated clinic, three laser machines, one paid physician assistant, 43 volunteer doctors. So if any of the parishioners here are starting to regret that tattoo that says bold, <laughs> Remington, um, <laughs> see me afterwards, no, no questions asked. And um, we have case managers, navigators, all sorts of classes. Uh, and then we have all our training programs and our uh, social enterprises, solar panel installation training, welding. Um, we have Homeboy Diner, the only place you can buy food at City Hall. If you ever fly to LA through American Airlines Terminal 4, we have a restaurant there. Uh, we have uh, Homeboy Bakery is thriving. Homeboy Homegirl merchandise where we sell our logo stuff online and in the store. Homeboy Silkscreen, which has been around for like 27 years and where we do uh, screen printing um, and embroidery. We have Homeboy Recycling where we do electronic waste recycling. Uh, farmers Markets. We have a thing called Homeboy Grocery that sells chips, salsas, and guacamole on both coasts and different uh, supermarkets. Anybody from the, from the East, you know, like Maine, New York, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, the stop and shops, we're in all those stop and shops. Uh, what am I missing? Homegirl Cafe, where women with records, young ladies from rival gangs, waitresses with attitude, will gladly take your order. And they cater. Uh, I guarantee you, if you go there, you're going to run into somebody, you know, a movie star, an elected official. Jim Carrey eats there with some regularity, and Jack Black and Forrest Whitaker, and uh, Vice President Joe Biden when he was vice president. So we got two hours' notice from Secret Service, which seems kind of remarkable to me. And uh, motorcade, entourage, selfies with Uncle Joe. Um, most famously, we had Diane Keaton, who, uh, uh, movie star, Godfather movies, Annie Hall, Oscar winner. She came for lunch, and her waitress was Glenda. And Glenda's a big girl, been there, done that, tattooed, felon, parolee. She has no idea who Diane Keaton is, you know. So Diane Keaton uh, says, you know, uh, well, what are your favorites? What, you know, and so she asks uh, Glenda what her particular favorites are. and. Uh, so Glinda rattles off the three dishes she particularly likes. And then uh, Diane Keaton says, well, I'll have that second one. That one sounds really good. And it's at that moment something, uh, you know, dawns on Glinda. She looks at Diane Keaton. She says, wait a minute. I feel like I know you from somewhere. 
you know, like maybe we've met. And Diane Keaton decides to deflect it humbly. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I suppose I, I have one of those faces that people think they've seen before. And then Glenda goes, no, now I know. We were locked up together. Yeah, that just took my breath away, and uh, I don't believe we've had any further Diane Keaton sightings, now that I think of it. But suddenly, kinship so quickly, Oscar-winning actress, attitudinal waitress, exactly what God had in mind, and you just need to hear Jesus speak to the gathered, that you may be one. That's how the exhausted God sees it. It's not about me, it's about you. You know, if you go to the, the covenantal relationship, God says, as I have loved you, now the God that we've invented, the God that we project, is the love me back God. As I have loved you, love me back. You find that somewhere in the scripture. No, it says this, which is really spacious and expansive and different. As I have loved you, so must you have a special preferential care and love for the widow, orphan, and the stranger. And God has identified these subgroupings of the poor, if you will, because God thinks these are the folks who know what it's like to have been cut off. And because they have suffered in exactly this way, God thinks these are the folks, precisely them, who are meant to be our trustworthy guides to get us to the kinship of God. You don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different. And that turns the whole thing on its head. You don't go to the margins to reach anybody. You go to the margins so that the widow, orphan, and stranger reach you. And what is that issue in? Kinship. Exquisite mutuality. The theologian Ron Rollheiser says that the widow, orphan, and stranger kind of doesn't resonate. We were talking earlier with your staff about Cochabamba and the, uh, the orphanages there and I worked there 35 years ago in Cochabamba and was the chaplain of an orphanage. But you kind of say, widows, well, our hearts go out to widows. And orphans, oh my gosh, our hearts melt. But in those days, these were the people society looked at and said, we can live without you. And Homeboy wants to say to the the 15,000 who walk through our doors, we refuse to live without you. Everyone in this room is called to be an enlightened witness. People who, through your kindness and tenderness and focused, attentive love, return people to themselves. But at Homeboy, we're allergic to the notion of holding the bar up and asking folks to measure up. Instead, we hold the mirror up and tell people the truth, that you are exactly what God had in mind 
when God made you. So the Buddhists talk about that a lot of great many uh, writings begin with these words, O nobly born, remember who you really are. Or as the Christmas carol goes, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And yet it's a song about Jesus. And yet it's a song about Christmas. But how is it not the job description of everybody in this room? You appear, the soul feels its worth. You hold the mirror up and say you're exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then folks at the margins become that truth. They inhabit that truth. And no bullet can pierce it. No four prison walls can keep it out. And death can't touch it because it's huge. And before David Hernandez, the 231st kid I buried because of gang violence, he knew that truth. And that is more powerful than death. So you try to uh, hold the mirror up, and, and it reflects back on you as well, and, and everybody has returned to themselves. But at Homeboy, you know that you have to reach in and dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace that get in the way that keep people from seeing their truth. The scripture scholar um, Marcus Borg says that the principal suffering of the poor throughout history and throughout scripture is shame and disgrace, and he's quite right. As I was uh, sitting in the plane and ready to take off, a homie who finally we, you know, he agreed to go to rehab. He was doing heroin. He had worked for us and he tested dirty and reluctantly, reluctantly, but he finally said, I'm going to do it today. I said, good luck, Michael. I love you. And, and all he wrote me back was, I feel so ashamed. It just broke my heart. I said, you are the son I would have begged God to give me. There is no room for shame here. I am so proud of you. But you reach in and you dismantle the messages of shame and disgrace. In the Acts of the Apostles, they have this one line that says simply, and awe came upon everyone. And it suggests that the measure of health in any community at all, including this one, may well reside in our ability to stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. So I, I remember years ago I was invited to speak to 600 social workers in Richmond, Virginia, and it was an uh, all-day, nine-to-five, uh, what we call in the biz, a gang in-service. So all these social workers go there to get credits, and you have keynotes and workshops and breakout sessions. And, and uh, held in a you know, hotel ballroom. And, and so I, I said, yeah, figuring I'd do a keynote or something, and I bought my ticket. Well, a week before I was to fly, I, I pulled out the original invitation letter, and to my horror, I discovered that I was to be the only speaker all damn day, nine to five. <laughs> and I said to myself, oh, hell no. So I invited two homies, trainees, gang members, who in their 18 months, they were probably at their ninth month or so, Andres, Andres and, uh, and Jose, and I sit him down in my office. I said, look, 
at the end of the week, you're flying with me to Richmond, Virginia. I'd like you to get up in front of 600 social workers and tell your stories. Take your time. Because <laughs> we got a long ass day to fill. Well, I'd never heard their stories, and Jose gets up first, and he's probably 25 years old at the time. And, um, and so we have different phases in 18 months. At that point, he had become a really valued member of our substance abuse team, uh, a man solid in his own recovery, and now he's helping younger homies and homegirls with their addiction issues, a man who had been in prison, tattooed gang member. But he also had a stretch as a homeless man and an even longer stretch as a heroin addict. And so um, he gets up in front of 600 social workers, and he says, I guess you could say my mom and me, we didn't get along so good. I think I was six when she looked at me and she said, why don't you just kill yourself? You're such a burden to me. Well, 600 social workers audibly gasped. And then he says, it, it sounds way worser in Spanish. <laughs> well, we, I've never seen this. We got whiplash going from gasp to laugh. But then he continued, I think I was nine when my mom drove me down to the deepest part of Baja California, and she walks me up to an orphanage. And she knocks on the door, and the guy comes to the door, and she says, I found this kid, and she left me there for 90 days until my grandmother could get out of her where she had dumped me, and my grandmother came and rescued me. My mom beat me every single day of my elementary school years with things you could imagine, and a lot of things you couldn't. Every day, my back was bloodied and scarred. In fact, I had to wear three t-shirts to school every day. First t-shirt, because the blood would seep through, and second t-shirt, you could still see the blood. Finally, the third t-shirt, you couldn't see any blood. Kids at school, they'd make fun of me. Hey, fool, it's 100 degrees. Why are you wearing three t-shirts? And then he stopped speaking so overwhelmed with emotion, and he seemed to be staring at a piece of his story that only he could see. And when he could regain his speech, he said through his tears, I wore three t-shirts well into my adult years because I was ashamed of my wounds. I didn't want anybody to see him. But now I welcome my wounds. I run my fingers over my scars. My wounds are my friends. After all, how can I help heal the wounded if I don't welcome my own wounds? And awe came upon everyone. The measure of our compassion lies not in our service of those on the margins, but only in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. 
For the truth of the matter is this, if we don't welcome our own wounds, we may well be tempted to despise the wounded. What Martin, Martin Luther King says about church could well be said of your time here this evening, that it's not the place you've come to, it's the place you go from. And you go from here to attempt to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. And fortunately for us, he only took four things seriously. Inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, compassionate acceptance. We take those things seriously. And we've taken seriously what Jesus took seriously. And then we've chosen to live as though the truth were true. And we go from this place to be the tender glance because we've received the tender glance. Behold the one beholding you and smiling. I was interviewed once uh, on the Christian Broadcasting Network by this nice Christian lady who was asking me what we do at Homeboy. And so I told her all the things I told you, the litany of tattoo removal therapy, case management, navigators, enemies working side by side with each other. I talked about gang members coming there and having for the first time an experience of being cherished. And then somehow because of that, they're able to find their way to the joy of cherishing. If a traumatized person traumatizes others, a cherished person will cherish others. And I went on at some length about what we do in our nine social enterprises, etc. When I finally finished my litany of things we do, the woman interrogating me kind of made a face. She said, yeah, but how much time do you spend each day at Homeboy, you know, praising God? And I didn't know what to say. So I said, all damn day. And I don't think she liked that answer very much. <laughs> but it begs this question, and I'll end with this. What kind of praise does our exhausted God have any interest in? So it occurs to universities mainly, sometimes high schools, but mainly universities, to force their students to read my books against their will. And I'm not complaining, but I, uh, so my alma mater, Gonzaga University in Spokane, who every year ruins my bracket in March Madness. <laughs> but I digress. Invited me uh, because uh, they forced the incoming freshmen to read Tattoos on the Heart. And so uh, I said, sure. And they were going to have a big Tuesday night, huge venue, a thousand people. And they said, could you bring two homies with you? And, and I do if people are going to pay for it. And I always pick homies in the same way. I always pick rivals, enemies who are working as trainees, just to force them to share a hotel room just to mess with them. 
And I always pick homies who have never flown before just for the thrill of seeing gang members panicked in the sky. I remember I, once I did this, we were at LAX, and I had two older guys, and, uh, and one of them said to me, dead serious, A.G., are we flying Virgin Airlines because it's our first time? I said, yeah, it's a requirement. <laughs> we'll be coming home on American. <laughs> so I picked two, I've done this a thousand times easily, I'm sure men and women, but I, I picked these two homies, Bobby, an African-American gang member who worked in the bakery at the time, and, and uh, Mario, who at the time worked in our merchandise store. Oh, I've done this so many times, but I've never, ever had anybody quite like Mario. He was so petrified to the bone. I, I've always been nervous, the homies, but this guy was just at a whole other level. He was hyperventilating, which I'd never been with anybody who did that, you know. <laughs> and we hadn't even, you know, boarded the plane yet, you know. And so we're at Burbank Airport, which is a smaller airport, big bay windows, Southwest Airlines, big planes but they don't have that hermetically sealed chute to board the plane. You have to walk out onto the tarmac like you're the president, and you walk up those steps to go to the front of the plane, and the big feature at Burbank are the steps to go to the back of the plane. And so um, Mario and I are sitting there. Bobby is exploring the, the airport, and the plane, our plane arrives. It's early morning, and people are deplaning. And I turn to Mario, I go, you know, Mario, that's going to be our plane. And, and I think, wow, you know, he may actually die before we climb those stairs. It was freaking me out. And, um, and then I see our, our, our crew arrives, pilots and flight attendants. And there were two female flight attendants. Each of them have very large cups of Starbucks coffee. And the two of them are schlepping up the front steps to board the plane. And, and Mario goes, when are we going to board the plane? I said, well, as soon as they sober up the pilots. <laughs> there they go now. Perhaps I shouldn't have said that. So I should tell you that in our 31-year history as an organization, Mario is the most tattooed individual who uh, has ever worked there, which, trust me, is saying something. You know, he's all sleeved out. His whole arm's covered in tattoos down to his fingertips. Neck blackened with the name of his gang. Head shaved, covered in tattoos. Forehead, cheeks, chin. Eyelids that say the end so that, I guess, lying in his coffin, there will be no doubt for anybody. <laughs> So, you know, I'm decided, you know, to walk him around the airport to calm him down, you know, and I'd never been in public with him. And, and people are like this, you know, and mothers are clutching their kids a little more closely. I'm thinking, wow, isn't that interesting? Because if you were to go to Homeboy tomorrow and walk up to anybody who works there and is quick, name the kindest, most gentle soul who works here, they won't say me. They'll think for half a second, and they will all say, Mario. Yeah, Mario. He works in the cafe now. Mario is proof 
that only the soul that ventilates the world with tenderness has any chance of changing the world. Mario is proof of what Jean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche Community Movement, says that tenderness is the highest form of spiritual maturity there is. So we get to Gonzaga, and of course there's the big talk Tuesday night. What they never tell you is, we have 93 other talks planned for you. You know, this lunch, this meeting, this lunch, this meeting, all damn day. And I go, oh my God. So I tell these guys, look, I'm going to sit in the back of the classroom. You guys get up and tell your stories. And uh, they're quite nervous, quite petrified, especially Mario, who's just a nervous Nelly about the whole thing. And so, but they get up and they do a good job. Stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse of every imaginable kind and honest to God, if their stories had been flames, you'd have to keep your distance. Otherwise, you'd get scorched. I would not have survived a single day of either of their childhood. So the nighttime talk comes, and as promised, it's a thousand people. I can't remember if I had told them this would happen or not, but anyway, I got them to get up and before me, and each do seven minutes each, a snapshot of their life, so that I could have them stand on either side of me during the Q&A time. And they got up and did a good job, but Mario in particular was just terrified because it was a thousand people. So they finished, I do my thing, then I call them up to stand on either side. Yeah, question. Yes, ma'am. And a woman stands in the back of the room. She goes, yeah, I got a question. It's for Mario. First question out the gate. And Mario is this tall, skinny drink of water, and he clutches the microphone. He's just terrified. Yes. And she said, well, Mario, you say you're a father, and you have a son and a daughter. They're about to enter their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? You know, what advice do you give them? Mario closes his eyes and he clutches the microphone even more intently. And he's getting a friggin' hernia trying to come up with whatever the hell he's going to say. And I can sense he's starting to tremble when suddenly he blurts out, I just... As soon as he says those two words, he rushes back to his microphone-clutching, closed-eyed refuge. And now I know he's losing the battle with his tears, but he wants to get the whole sentence out. I, I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And there's silence. Until the woman who asked the question stands, and now it's her turn to cry, and she says, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You are loving, you are kind, you are gentle, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And a thousand total perfect strangers stand, and they will not stop clapping. And all Mario can do is hold his face in his hands, so overwhelmed that this room full of strangers had returned him to himself. But let there be no doubt that everyone standing had been returned to themselves, which shouldn't surprise us because it's mutual 
everyone holding the mirror up, everyone looking at each other and saying, you're here, you're here, oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. Exquisitely mutual in communicating the same message to each other. And the soul felt its worth. And I think that's the only praise our exhausted God has any interest in. And so you go to the margins, because that's what the boldness of living the gospel will always look like. And you seek to create a community of kinship such that God might recognize it because that is God's dream come true. And you feel the tender glance and you have no choice except to be that tender glance in the world at the margins. And you don't go there to make a difference. You go there so that the folks at the margins make you different. And that's how kinship happens. And before too long, you cease to care if anyone accuses you of wasting your time. For in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. All right, everybody, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices Project. You can learn more about what we are up to at missingvoices.flagler.edu. That's missingvoices.flagler.edu. I want to thank Noble Media for their production of the podcast and Troy Aragon Buchanan for the original music. We believe there are good and wonderful gifts to be enjoyed and voices to be lifted up and heard that exist at the margins of society and the church. I hope today's conversation might just push you to keep these young people in mind. What if your youth ministry made room for the kids we talked about today? Until next time, be well.